their fingerprints right back to those companies who made them knowing that they would be in our environment, knowing they would stay in our blood. That's Robert Ballot, author and environmental attorney behind the 20-year battle against DuPont, poison water, and corporate greed. Yet here we all are still in the year 2020, almost 2021, still trying to to find a way to, to have the companies accept responsibility for the damages that have been caused by this over the last 70 years. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Robert Ballot to discuss his decades-long dedication to holding chemical giant DuPont accountable, including how he nearly passed on the case that started it all. One day I was sitting in my office and I got a call and this man on the other end of the line starts telling me all about cows dying on his property and I need to help him. And frankly, I was about to hang up. (laughs) That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Robert Ballot is the renowned attorney who led the charge against DuPont and much of his experience has been documented and shared with the public. I asked Robert to elaborate on what it was like being involved in the media made about this major case, including multiple documentaries, a best-selling book, and the Hollywood blockbuster, Dark Waters. It was fascinating to watch that whole process, you know, with the, how a documentary is made, you know, working on a book, seeing a movie being made, but really all of it was incredibly encouraging, you know, to see this story finally coming out to the public after all of these years. And that's something I had been working on for so long, trying to find a way to get the story out in an effective way, one that people could actually understand why this is important to everyone, not just one family in West Virginia or just one community along the Ohio River, but why this story really was important for everyone. This is a massive public health threat, really of unprecedented proportions. And, you know, just to, to be able to have the opportunity to get that story out through a documentary and a book in a film was just incredible. And, uh, you know, really fortunate to have just tremendous people working on all of those projects that did an ter- absolutely terrific job. So I'd love to know, I mean, I remember reading that, you know, that growing up you loved art and design and, you know, I believe you wanted to be an architect, but what, what sparked your interest in environmental law? Well, you know, my dad originally is the one who kind of uh, steered me into the legal profession. He was finishing up law school after 20 years in the Air Force. And in fact, he was actually finishing up law school about the time I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do after college and really was encouraging me to go get a law degree saying, you know, this could give you so many different opportunities to do so many different things. And I did. I, I kind of switched uh, switched my plans at that point, applied to law school. And it was really actually in the toward the end of law school, around the, I guess it was the end of the third year, where there was an elective course you could take uh, on environmental law. And that 
for whatever reason, just seemed really interesting to me, seemed like really real world impact. So when I actually graduated later that year, the firm that I went to happened to have an environmental uh, law department. I had no no idea actually what that meant or what they did. But uh, remembering that class, I asked to be part of that. And it seems like, so this obviously comes in handy much later, but, you know, early on, it seems like you gravitated towards the corporate defense side, right? What what was the reason why you chose to kind of pursue that route? Well, again, after I graduated from law school, really not understanding the legal world or how, how law firms worked, I was offered the position with the Taft Law Firm in Cincinnati, Taft, Statinius, and Hollister. Um, they had an environmental group. I asked to join that group. And... I kind of learned this this whole world of environmental law through that law firm. And most of the clients, though, that the firm represented happened to be companies, big chemical companies, corporations. Uh, So that's the way I got into the defense side. Those were the clients that our firm happened to represent at that time, which was great experience, really fascinating experience, uh, learning all of those different rules, regulations on the state and federal level. And um, really understanding what the concerns were of the corporate clients and the big companies about these rules and laws and, and what were their concerns? What were their issues with these laws? And in the book, you kind of described yourself as a, as a grinder, not a finder. And I think even speaking with Mike Papantoni recently, he, you know, he spoke to your tenacity. But when you talk about grinder versus finder, how so? Well, you know, there are folks that have certain types of personalities that I think are, are, are really well suited for going out and whining and dying clients and going to cocktail parties and business generators. You know, those are what we call, at least in the legal world, the finders, the, the people that are actually able to go out and, and woo new clients. Uh, my personality uh, probably was not necessarily geared toward doing that. I was a lot more, I guess, um, introverted, more shy, um, didn't necessarily have a lot of contacts, you know, in, in, in society or those circles, and really felt that my area of, um, that I could really excel was in doing the work, doing the actual day-to-day, digging through the files, trying to find the answers. In the legal world, we call that Those are the folks that are the grinders, grinding away at the actual day-to-day work once the client has been found and brought into the firm. Now, I imagine there's going to be people that are listening to this podcast that have not seen the documentary, may have not read the book, uh, may have not seen Dark Waters, or maybe are, you know, for whatever reason, may not be familiar with this 20-year battle that you had against DuPont. And I'd love to speak to that because it seems like things changed. I think it was October 9th, 1998. You got a call from Earl Tennant. I'd love to hear, what was your first interaction with him? Yeah, that was an interesting day. You know, I had spent the first eight years or so of my career helping our corporate clients, doing a lot of work for big chemical companies all across the country at uh, Superfund cleanup sites. That was something that was uh, really taking up a lot of time in the early 90s. Uh, You know, there were companies that were being dragged in to massive multi-million dollar cleanups all across the country under the Superfund law. And so a lot of that's what I was doing uh, most of the days or helping our clients get permits to emit things into the air, into the water, into landfills. And then one day I was sitting in my office and I got a call and this man on the other end of the line starts telling me all about cows dying on his property and I need to help him. 
And frankly, I was about to hang up. <laughs> I wasn't sure how this, this gentleman got my name, why he was calling me. This is definitely not something you know, that I did. Um, and it was at that point he said, well, I got your name from your grandmother. And so I really kind of paused and listened and tried to figure out why. Why was he getting my name from my grandmother? What was the connection here? And what I uh, soon found out was that he was raising cows on property outside of Parkersburg, West Virginia. And that just so happened to be the town where my mom and her entire family had grown up. And my dad was in the military, so we moved around a lot, but we typically would come back to Parkersburg for family holidays, for birthdays. So I had spent a lot of time there and really kind of saw it as one of my hometowns, so to speak. So when I heard that this guy was calling from Parkersburg, I immediately understood that connection. And what he told me was he would ha was having this problem with his cows dying just dropping dead. And he had been trying to get lawyers there locally to talk to him, but was having all kinds of trouble. So he had been talking to his neighbor who happened to have been on the phone with my grandmother that day. And the neighbor was longtime friends with my grandmother who said, hey, my grandson is an environmental lawyer up in Cincinnati. I'm sure he can help you. So that's, that's how that connection came to be. And so when I heard that, I said, okay, you know, I'm happy to, to listen to what your issue is, bring up whatever, whatever information you have. He claimed he had videotapes and photographs. I just need to, needed to look at what he had. And once I saw that, I'd see the problem. So we invited him up. That was back uh, 22 years ago. I remember reading about this in the book and, and even seeing in the movie. And one of the things that still I, I'd love to ask you about is just like, given the type of law that you guys were practicing and the fact that it was corporate defense, I still would love to know, how did you get your partners on board with this, with even taking on Earl's case? Well, you know, when we first sat down um, and, you know, the tenants came to, into our offices back in 1998, it just so happened that the head of our environmental practice group was walking down the hall and saw this gentleman whose name was Mr. Tennant and his wife with their boxes. And I invited him in and said, hey, Tom, you know, want to look at these videos? Maybe you can uh, help out with, with this issue. And he did. He came in and sat down. So I had the head of our environmental group looking at these videotapes and photographs with me. Um, and as we were looking at this, we thought, you know, hey, this is something we could help these folks out with. This is a landfill. This is something coming out of a landfill, some white foaming water. This is what I did every day. This, you know, I helped companies get permits to run landfills. And it seemed like a fairly straightforward case. You know, here was somebody complaining about white foam coming out of a landfill that was permitted by the state of West Virginia. Certainly, we could pull the permits, do what I typically did for our corporate clients, figure out what was there, maybe at above permitted levels, or maybe there was some regulated material that was being discharged too high. We could get to the bottom of that pretty quickly. It seemed like a rather straightforward, narrow case. And after all, this was a family friend. Uh, so, you know, when we initially took it on, we had no idea, you know, that this would actually lead us to discovering that this was a problem that went far beyond that one family in one farm, that it was something that affected almost the entire planet. And there came a point, maybe it was the cattle team report, or even, you know, when you I think received like 1,200 pages of documents from DuPont, but like at what point do you feel like you're really like getting close to this, like that there was really something amiss? You know, I think when we first started um, looking at this report, as you mentioned. There was a, an expert report that had been prepared by a team of scientists from DuPont and from the US EPA. 
when we first started the case, the DuPont lawyers told us, hey, you know, no need to get into a whole bunch of discovery, no need to be getting, you know, adversarial about all this. We've got experts working on this right now who are looking at these cows who will be able to tell us what the problem is. Let's hold off and see what they say. And frankly, that made sense to me at the time, maybe naively as I look back. But this was, after all, DuPont, one of the most sophisticated companies on the planet with some of the best scientists on the planet and US EPA, the top regulator. So we trust, I trusted, you know, that we would be getting some pretty good uh, information in this report. But when the report came in and essentially said, these guys just don't know how to raise cows, uh, it's all their fault. I sat back and, and thought about what I had seen on that property. I, I had, I'd gone out to this farm. I had met with Mr. Tennant. They knew how to raise cows. They were not mistreating their animals. You know, something was clearly fishy at that point. And I began to start to wonder whether the suspicions that Mr. Tennant had, you know, that, that DuPont was working hand in hand with the regulators, maybe there was something to that. And that's when we really started digging in and getting a little, uh, a heck of a lot more suspicious about what we were seeing, what we were reading. And if you could speak to the, really the discovery of like PFAS, which, you know, particularly like PFOA and PFOS, even for the people listening as to what this is, you know, I remember in the movie, you know, it's mentioned that you did not love chemistry, but it, it seems like that this experience actually, it probably led to you learning quite a bit more. Yeah, it did. It unfortunately led to me uh, taking a crash course in chemistry and epidemiology and toxicology, things that I thought I would never have to deal with um, after going to my liberal arts college uh, down in Florida, where I had thought I was going to be able to avoid that. But as we started digging into documents that we had gotten from DuPont, uh, what we found out was there, were, there was a chemical in that landfill and in the water that was coming out of the landfill that was creating this white foam that wasn't on the permits, that wasn't on any of the regulations or the lists of, of regulated materials that we were looking at. It was this, this chemical called PFOA that I'd never heard of. I couldn't find any information about it. And what we saw was that this was something that had been invented right after World War II by the 3M company. Completely man-made chemical, did not exist on the planet prior to World War II. And it was something that was being made and sold to DuPont in very large quantities. Going back as early as 1951, DuPont started purchasing this. This is decades before the US EPA even came into existence. The US EPA was formed in 1970. The first federal rules really regulating new chemicals coming out onto the market came out in 1976. And they really focused on new chemicals from that point forward. So this chemical, which had already been out there and was being used for decades, the law was essentially leaving it up to 3M and DuPont, the makers and users of the chemicals, to tell them if there was any reason to be concerned and go back and look at these chemicals. And unfortunately, what I was seeing was decades of toxicity studies, of human worker studies that were showing all kinds of problems and all kinds of threats and risks from the chemical. But the companies had not told the EPA about this. So essentially what I saw was here we were dealing with massive quantities of a very toxic, dangerous chemical that the regulators and the public seem to know nothing about, even though by the time I was looking at these documents in the year 2000, this stuff had been in use for some 50, 60 years. 
Now, did you know at the time, I mean, I guess just recognizing that these were forever chemicals, that, that this stuff really does not break down. And I think, you know, I know sometimes people hear PFOA, but then, you know, I think the other common name is C8. You start to hear a lot of that as well. How, how familiar were you literally with just the composition of it? Not at all. I had never heard of this stuff. And we really had to start digging in with experts to help us understand what these chemicals were and why were the scientists at DuPont and 3M so concerned about this stuff, uh, even though it was still unregulated. What we came to learn was that this stuff, which, as you mentioned, also was nicknamed C8, it was pretty unusual. It was a chemical that had this unique uh, structure of eight carbons attached to fluorine. That's why DuPont called it C8 for the eight carbons. And that chemical structure made it incredibly strong, which made it useful in all kinds of manufacturing processes, but it also made it incredibly difficult to break it apart out in the natural environment. So when it got out and got into the soil or got into the water, and the scientists looking at this knew this going back decades, that this stuff essentially would not break down. It would stay there virtually forever. That's why you hear about these chemicals now being referred to as forever chemicals. And that's why the scientists started researching the toxicity of this stuff as early as they did back in the 60s, because they realized we're using a lot of it. We're emitting a lot of it. It's going up into our up into the air through our smokestacks. We're discharging it into rivers. We're dumping it into unlined landfills and pits where it's going into the groundwater. It's going to stay there forever. What's it going to do to living things? And by the 60s, they were understanding that it caused all kinds of toxic effects. And by the 70s, they realized not only did this stuff really not break down in the environment, it got into living things and it stayed in us and it built up over time. It was persistent and bioaccumulative. So you had this real trifecta of, of, of harm here where you had this persistent bioaccumulative toxic material that was getting out into the environment in massive quantities. And if people were exposed to it, it would get in people, stay there and build up to higher and higher levels over time. And nobody was being told any of this. It seems confounding that something like this could happen. After all, isn't this the reason why the EPA exists? I wanted to hear Robert's take on the factors that allowed so many harmful chemicals to go unregulated for so long. Something I really try to spend some time exploring in the book, Exposure, you know, is how did this happen? How is it that you can have chemicals like this? And it's not just PFOA. Like you mentioned, PFOA is just one chemical in what we now know to be a huge class of these man-made chemicals that all share this really odd and unique carbon-fluorine bond. We call them now PFOS per and polyfluoroalkylated substances. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of these man-made chemicals. PFOA is just one of them in that group. And unfortunately, that whole group has essentially escaped or been under the radar of regulators since they were first invented. And it's because these federal laws focusing on setting up rules for testing chemicals before they come out on the market those rules didn't come into play until after these chemicals were already out there and already being used. And this is one reason, for example, that folks pointed to this story in this chemical, PFOA, as one of the prime reasons why that federal law needed to be changed and revamped. And in 2016, 
there were finally changes made to try to beef up those rules. But it took a long time and it took years to get this story out for people to understand this is how this system really works. And there are thousands, if not tens of thousands of chemicals out there that have escaped this entire regulatory process. And I want to make sure that like the people listening really do appreciate because, you know, reading the book, I, I can tell you this 20 year battle, the fact of like how long so many aspects of this case had taken the amount of work involved and so on. And in fact, I think even two and a half years after meeting with Earl, there was the famous letter, right? The one in March uh, in 2001, when you guys you put together this famous letter, I think it weighed like, you know, each copy was like 12 pounds or so. But this was this is backing up Earl's theory, right? That there was something in the water. If you could speak to that. Yeah, this was after we had spent a lot of time going through these internal documents from DuPont, and I started piecing together what the story about what was known that this chemical was as toxic as it was. It presented all these health threats, and then not realizing not only were there thousands of tons of this of sludge containing this chemical in the landfill. <laughs> that Mr. Tennant was complaining about, which helped us resolve that case for him once we figured that out. But we, th we then saw that the chemical was not just in the water these cows were drinking coming out of this landfill. It was in the public drinking water. And DuPont had known this going back into the early 1980s. They had been secretly testing the public water. And not only was it in the public water in West Virginia and Ohio on both sides of the river, it had been found in the general population's blood, and nobody really was understanding that. So looking at all these, all this information, putting these documents together, we realized there was a massive public health threat going on that nobody really was even aware of. The regulators didn't seem to know that this chemical even existed, let alone that it was in water and blood all over the country. And the public certainly didn't know. So I, I felt that we needed to make sure the public and the regulators and the scientific community were alerted to this threat. And that's why I put that letter together. And very naively at the time thought, <laughs> once we send this letter that attaches all of this information, this was March 6th of 2001, that certainly the regulators would swoop in, set drinking water standards and guidelines. Yet here we are 20 years later, and that still hasn't happened. And again, that's why, as I try to point out in the book, and as you see in the film, this is why folks are now realizing we have major problems with this entire system in the way chemicals are regulated. That even when this information comes out and there's information available, look how difficult it is to get things actually regulated here in the United States. It's a, it's a major, major concern. And as, as it really shifted, I'd love for you to speak to like how your strategy and focus changed when, you know, moving from like a single plaintiff to ultimately it became a class action suit, including even, I think at the time, your introduction to Joe Kiger. Yeah. After I sent that letter to all the different agencies I could think of at the federal and state levels, the community there along the Ohio River near the DuPont plant that was emitting this stuff and that was sending things to these landfills, that community finally found out that this had been in their water. And it was there in the water at levels, even though it wasn't regulated, there were no state or federal standards for how much of this was okay in your drinking water. The DuPont scientists themselves had established an internal guideline. And what we knew was the, the, the amount that was in the public water was way above that. So when the community finally found that out, they came to us, people like Joe Kiger, who we talk about in the book, you see in the documentary and in the film, Joe and his wife and others in the community came to us and said, 
we want this out of the water and we want to know what's it going to do to us in the long term. So, you know, it was it presented all kinds of legal challenges to us. You know, as lawyers, we had to figure out how do you do that when you've got a chemical like this that isn't regulated? You know, how do you go about getting it out? Um, so we had to come up with some creative ways, you know, to really pursue those claims to try to get it out of the water, to get the science done, to get people entitled to testing and studies to make sure that they were fully apprised of what this chemical would do to them. And that's what led to the class action that was filed in 2001. And as this case grew, Rob, I'd love to know, like, with having more and more documents presented to you, how were you able to just essentially not only organize everything, but, but stay on top of everything, including, the, you know, what you had to learn? Uh, not an easy task. I had a fabulous paralegal who's still with me. I mean, I, I'm now in my 30th year at the Taft Law Firm. And Kathleen, my paralegal, who you, you know, they, you'll see in the film, there's somebody you know, named Kathleen that's, that they bottled it after. Uh, you know, she has been our, what we call the document wizard. She's helped me create the databases and go through all these documents. And as you see in the film, I mean, this, these were the days before a lot of things were done electronically, before you got computer disks with, with documents and emails. These were good old hard copies. And, uh, you know, I had maybe kind of an odd way of doing this, but I wanted to go through everything in chronological order so I could see the story as it, as it unfolded. So we would print all this out, organize everything chronologically, and just try to understand and see the, the flow of the story. And it took a long time, uh, you know, because you, you would get some pieces through this production, then maybe some more would come a couple of months later or something from that should have been produced months ago finally got produced. You'd have to keep constantly updating it and putting it together and synthesizing it and then understanding uh, that, working with experts to understand it. Um, and you had to be monitoring not only what I was seeing in these documents, but understanding what DuPont was doing with the legislative process, with the regulators, with the scientists in their publications and all of that going on at the same time. So it was a lot more than just handling the day-to-day -day legal case and filings in court. We had to be also monitoring the science, the regulatory process and the legislative process and what was going on in the media and the PR war that DuPont was waging in the background. And I recall, I think in 2004, there was a mediation where there was, you know, an initial settlement reached, but the idea was that there would be a science panel. I, I would love to ask you, I mean, did, did you know that this would lead to a seven-year epidemiological study? You know, I think at the time, maybe even still, it's one of the largest ever done. But if you could speak to what the science panel was, the purpose of it, and what did they actually study? Yeah, well, you know, nobody had really ever done this before. So we we weren't sure exactly, frankly, how long it would take or how well it would work. Um, but what we had been seeing as we went through all of the documents and went through the legal process with the class action, the arguments became pretty clear that DuPont was making uh, about what the science said. Even though we were seeing all kinds of animal data that was showing cancer, you know, their own scientists confirming this chemical caused cancer in rats. What we would hear is, well, yeah, but that's animals and, uh, and the rodent studies don't have any relevance to humans, even though that's why you're doing the rodent studies. You don't care if the rat's getting cancer. You're trying to predict whether humans will. Same thing with the monkeys and the other animals. Well, then we, when we started saying, well, okay, well, now we have your human studies. We have your worker data that's showing problems as well. 
Ah, well, but those are highly exposed workers. You don't have any data that's telling you what it might do to people drinking it at these trace, what they call trace levels, even though it was way above their own guideline, levels in the water. So when we sat down to resolve this case, we knew that we had this basic fight going on where DuPont was saying there wasn't enough data to say what this would do to people exposed in this community. And even the human data we did have, they said the studies hadn't been big enough. There weren't enough people. There weren't tens of thousands of people being studied. So we couldn't draw valid conclusions. So we, we came up with this idea to have independent scientists look at all of that data and do whatever new studies were necessary to finally address this issue that there simply wasn't a big enough study, there wasn't enough data. So to finally do that, and we had, frankly, we knew we needed tens of thousands of people. So we, we had this idea to pay class members to come in to provide blood data, to provide medical information. We had no idea whether people would do that, but we ended up getting 69,000 people to participate. So you had all that data now going into these scientists who then had a blank check to design whatever studies they needed to confirm this. And the amount of data, the amount of people participating, the amount of studies needed, it led to an incredibly long process, but one that eventually confirmed what we'd been seeing, that this chemical presented a serious threat to humans, including cancer threat. Such a long process with incredibly high stakes must have taken a toll on Robert personally. I asked him to pull back the curtain and share what the experience was like. It was incredibly stressful on a, on a number of levels. And, you know, I address that in the book. You see this in the film where, you know, as we're waiting, as we're waiting for the scientific process to play out, people continue to be exposed. It's not like, to, um, uh, you know, that everything stopped. I mean, people continue to get sick. People continue to develop disease. I, I would be contacted all the time about uh, family members in the community who had died, you know, while this process was playing out. So that weighs heavily on you, you know, knowing that you've set up this process. In the meantime, you know, people are having real serious complications while they're waiting. And at the same time, you have to think about what was going on in the world during this period of time, 2006 to 2012, massive economic meltdown. You know, the economy was imploding. So, you know, to be having a case like this hanging out there where, you know, we were spending still a lot of time, a lot of expense with scientists trying to track what was happening, what was being published to make sure the scientists on the science panel, you know, were aware of all the data. It was incredibly stressful because nobody knew how this process would play out uh, and whether these people would, would eventually be able to get the relief they were entitled to. And as this, you know, basically turned into a full, like, you know, MDL, right? The, the, the C8 personal injury litigation. Talk to me about the decision to bring on board, like, Mike Papantonio and Gary Douglas to try these cases. When the scientific panel finally completed their work, and by 2012, they had announced that this chemical was, in fact, confirmed to be linked with six different diseases, including kidney cancer and testicular cancer. Well, under our settlement agreement that we had negotiated, Everybody in that community, the 70,000 people, all of their personal injury claims had been put on hold pending the outcome of this process. Well, once these links had been confirmed, everybody was told, you now have the right to move forward with injury claims if you have one of these diseases. There were about 3,500 people in that community 
who came forward claiming that they had one of these diseases and, and wanted to pursue claims. Those all got consolidated into one multi-district litigation proceeding up in Columbus, Ohio in 2013. And that process was, was going to move forward to start taking cases to trial. DuPont was still denying that it was responsible or should be held liable for this, despite what the scientists had said. And at that point, we knew we needed some of the top trial lawyers in the country to be able to help us present this case to trial and get these cases worked up. And, you know, Mike, I had had known Mike Papantonio from, from earlier and they were the best. And so we brought them in, Mike and uh, the Douglas and London firm came in as well. You know, some of the best folks that for handling and managing multi-district litigation proceedings and did an absolutely fantastic job in getting these cases prepared and through trials, resulting in all verdicts for the plaintiffs in in these first uh, three cases that went to trial. And after this 20-year battle, you know, in 2016, DuPont agreed to, uh, they paid $670 million to settle more than 3,500 lawsuits, uh, including the cases that already went to trial. But I'd love to get your thoughts. Like, would you say that you were satisfied with the end result of this? Because I know at the end of the book, you say you still have a lot of work to do. Well, you know, I think I am incredibly pleased that the folks who actually were injured by this in that community that came forward and wanted to pursue their claims got compensated. This is one of the only situations in the entire world where people who've been exposed to these chemicals have actually been able to get compensation for the diseases that have been caused. What I continue to be frustrated in, though, is that DuPont and other manufacturers continue to dispute the science outside the context of this case. Despite what we agreed to here, and when this chemical pops up in in water elsewhere, they deny that the science is is there. Uh, 3M continues to deny, you know, that the science shows health effects. And unfortunately, what we've seen happen is this chemical has, sure enough, shown up in drinking water all over the country, all over the world. It's in the blood of virtually every person on the planet. And now we realize it's not just PFOA. It's uh, all of these related PFOS chemicals. We're finding like PFOS that was made by 3M and used in things like firefighting foams or Scotchgard. It's being found outside military bases and airports all over the country, all over the world, where firefighting foams, aqueous film-forming foam was used. Uh, So we have these additional PFOS chemicals now being found. And what we hear now is the company saying, well, you don't have adequate evidence to say that they present any threat to human health. Almost exactly the same thing we heard 20 years ago when we first started in on PFOA, and it took 20 years to finally go through this process to confirm with independent scientists that this chemical is linked with these six diseases. And then, unfortunately, once the companies start agreeing to phase out those chemicals, PFOA and PFOS, they simply tweak them a bit. They knock a couple carbons off. Instead of a C8, we now have a C6. And what we're told is, well, all of that science that was done on PFOA None of that relates to this new chemical, which you have no evidence to say it causes harm. So I'm, I'm trying to pursue litigation to get the science in the studies confirmed on these additional chemicals as well, and to have the companies that are making these knowing that they're going to get out into our environment, knowing they're going to get into us, having them pay for it, but have independent scientists actually confirm what the health effects would be. 
And to speak to even the, the corporate greed aspect of it, because I think sometimes people hear this but may not fully understand kind of the, the underlying motivations of it. And from my understanding, I think Teflon at the time was driving, let's say, a billion dollars of revenue a year. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the documents that we were able to uncover through the litigation, you know, provided a pretty good insight and some glimpses inside the uh, the company, you know, as to what was being discussed. You know, we saw, for example, when they started becoming aware that this chemical was getting out into the air, into the water of the community, uh, discussion about, well, gee, maybe we ought to tell them or maybe we ought to switch to another alternative. Uh, and, you know, the decisions that were made about, well, it might cost us more money and it's not legally required. Uh, it's not regulated. Even draft standby press releases, you know, in case somebody found out that never went out. So unfortunately, you see this process. And in this litigation, we had this pretty rare, unusual opportunity to see some of the emails from their own attorneys, from DuPont's counsel that were turned over uh, and produced, where their own attorneys are saying, you know, that this is a problem and the company could be hit with punitive damages. And unfortunately, the the company, you know, the business side won out uh, and really disregarded that advice, even from their own lawyers and frankly, from some of their own scientists. And this is what happened. This is the result of that kind of behavior. So what will it take? Because here you have somebody, even in your case, of literally knowing how these chemical companies operate. You know, you've got incredible, incredible just trial attorneys that have been involved in this. There was obviously a great settlement. But at the same time, I know you mentioned that this is still ongoing. And it seems like not even just C8, but obviously other chemicals. What will it take to finally bring this to an end? Well, you know, as a lawyer, I'll be the first one to tell you that people shouldn't have to be going out getting lawyers uh, to get clean water, to get protection from exposure to chemicals that are linked with health problems like this. You know, I mean, think about it. We're, we're talking about PFAS chemicals that have so many different health effects, one of which, the one that's of prime concern right now to a lot of scientists is its ability to affect and impact our immune system. You know, here we are in the middle of, an, of a pandemic and we're, we've got chemicals that we know are getting into our water and are in our blood or in our babies as, as they're being born that have the potential to impair our immune system and that have the potential to decrease vaccine function. Unfortunately, we're still, though, being told that the people who are exposed to these chemicals, the people that are dealing with having to clean it up out of their water, out of their drinking water, that they've got to pay for it. They've got to be the ones to come into court and prove why they shouldn't have to drink this, why they shouldn't have to continue to be exposed. And, you know, unfortunately, there's still massive amount of litigation going on over that as the companies continue to deny, you know, the responsibility for this. Even though you have to keep in mind, these are completely man-made chemicals. So when you find them in the water, when you find them in the blood, when you find them you know, out there, there are fingerprints right back to those companies who made them knowing that they would be in our environment, knowing they would stay in our blood. Yet here we all are still in the year 2020, almost 2021, uh, still trying to, to find a way to, to have the companies accept responsibility for the damages that have been caused by this over the last 70 years. Do you ever think about what your life might have been like if you had not taken on Earl's case? I can't imagine. I really can't. You know, he was an incredible inspiration, frankly. You know, he came in convinced 
there was something going on and was not going to take no for an answer and was not going to just trust that people were looking out and taking care of this. You know, the government was 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 going to take care of this and, you know, just trust that somebody, of course, wouldn't let something like this happen. And he was right. You know, he ended up being absolutely right. And I'm hoping, you know, with his story being shown now in this film, which is being Dark Waters, which is being viewed now all over the world and the documentary and in the book that people are inspired to know things can change. You know, even one person standing up, speaking out and saying, this isn't the way it should be. This isn't the way we should handle these issues. It can lead to dramatic change. And since the New York Times Magazine article which came out in 2016, which spurred a lot of the attention and coverage here. And the movie, the documentary, the book, in the last year or two, we are seeing action and change on these issues that I frankly never thought I would see, where we have legislators and regulators in states all across the country now who are taking on these issues. Legislation and regulations being proposed at the federal level for the first time in 22 years. Discussions occurring internationally, at the UN, in the EU, in the UK, where efforts are underway to try to figure out ways to ban these chemicals worldwide. You know, things that are all happening because you had a farmer in West Virginia who took the, had the courage to stand up and demand that people look into this and, and not just uh, accept this is the way it works and this is this is how it is and you should just accept it uh, none of us should uh, and we, and hopefully this story will help people see that there are major problems in the way these issues are handled and hopefully it'll have some smart people figure out some great ways to fix it going forward and Rob, I mean, and as the saying goes, that the past is always viewed from the context of the present. But I'd love to know what was driving you throughout this whole time, because obviously this took its toll not only on yourself, but your family, your wife, your children, you know, everybody around you. And I mean, I, I imagine that going into this, you'd probably not imagine this would be a 20 year battle. But what, what kept you going? Well, you know, I always kind of had the voice of Earl Tennant in the back of my head that said, if people can just see these facts, if we can just get people to sit down and look at this, they'll get it. They'll understand why this is a problem. And he was right. It took me a while to come around to that way of thinking. But as I started to see the scope and severity of this, you know, this worldwide health threat, I just kept thinking if I can just find a better way to convey this information, you know, it started with my letter to the agencies in 2001. You know, and then we had trials where we were able to lay all of this information out uh, to the public through jury trials, week-long trials. And still, you had companies standing up saying, you know, essentially that the science isn't there. This never happened. You know, this, 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 these connections were never shown. You know, so to, to then find ways to get the story out, like through a film, through a book, you know, that helped people see these facts. Um, you know, it's taken a long time, but it's incredibly, uh, I think, uh, encouraging and inspiring to see that, you know, it can happen. It just takes, it may take a while, but it can happen. And Rob, as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, uh, you're certainly a game changer, but what does that mean to you? What, what does it mean to be a game changer? 
Well, uh, I appreciate I appreciate that, but um, you know, I'm hoping that we're able to to inspire people to change the way we approach exposure to toxic chemicals like this. The whole way in which the burden of proof is established in our legal system for exposure to environmental toxins. And you know, if you look at this story and you watch the film and you see what it was required of the people who were exposed in order to get any relief here. I mean, all the burden was essentially put on them. They had to put these studies together. They had to come up with a way to get the testing done, to get tens of thousands of people, to get the big enough studies that the companies were insisting were needed. Should that really be their burden to do that? Or should the government or the companies that are responsible be taking this on? And unfortunately, you know, as I try to explain in the book, you know, you've got this problem with the way the regulatory system is set up as well that you unfortunately don't have the government stepping in and doing these things. So I, I'm hoping, you know, that we can change that game uh, of way the uh, the games played, putting all of this burden on those of us who are exposed and used as human guinea pigs in these exposure trials that go on for decades that we hopefully can change that. And I do want to ask another question because I imagine there's somebody listening to this who is who's hearing all this and they're thinking this this is this is criminal. Like I cannot believe this. But Rob, what can I do? Right? Whether it's a trial lawyer, even even a non-lawyer, like what what can they do? Talk about this, you know, have have discussions, continue this conversation, because that's the only thing that really causes this to change. And that's that's what's really, I think, spurred a lot of the activity that we're seeing just within the last year or two is the fact that people are seeing this story uh, that finally, after all of these years, you know, people being able to see the films, read the book and say, wow, this really happened. But we need to have people talking about it and saying and, and realizing, yes, this did happen. Yes, this science really is out there. Yes, these things really exist. Because we can't just assume that we have people out there handling this for us, taking care of it. Uh, there are a number of groups that, ha- that are out there right now in, on the PFAS issues, particularly with the rollout of the film. There was a campaign started called Fight Forever Chemicals, where different community groups, different environmental groups across the country and some internationally uh, are trying to come together and provide resources for people online where they can find out what products were these chemicals used in. Um, You know, none of us had the ability to really prevent these exposures or avoid these exposures because we didn't even know they were happening. We didn't know we were being exposed to these chemicals. We didn't know they were in these products. So critically important is getting information out there and available to the public about where were they used, what products were used in them, and which companies are switching away. So um, there's some great work going on. People like the Environmental Working Group, Center for Environmental Health, Green Science Policy Institute that are out there really trying to make those resources available and to make help people have that conversation. I want to give a huge thank you to Robert Ballot for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated for me was Robert's diligence and endurance. Considering the fact that this case spanned over multiple decades, it's inspiring to see someone who is so committed to driving change, no matter the odds stacked against him. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner who you believe would benefit. And you know what? Maybe more than one. 
For more information on our interview with Robert Ballot, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time when we'll be talking to professional boxer, trainer, and entrepreneur George Foreman III about the fighter mentality in life and in business. Life is about moments and triggers. It's about moments, instances. Boxing is very much like that. And I liken it to dealing with an opponent. So when you hop in the ring, like, especially if you're evenly matched, you can't just go out there and just do what you got to do. Like, you have to make adjustments. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Thank you.